You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. But we just want to make much of Jesus, and we do that through worship and song. We do that, as we're going to do right now, through the preaching of God's Word, and then in a little bit through celebrating the Lord's table. As many of you know, um, we're in the book of Ephesians, just started uh, two weeks ago. Uh, And within our sermon series on the book of Ephesians, there's this like mini sermon series between verses 3 to 14, which we're going to go through really slowly. And even within that mini series, there's yet another mini mini series between today, next week, and the following week with verses 3 to 6. So I'm slowing down to look at these verses because their significance cannot be overstated. When you try to overstate it, I promise you, you won't be able to overstate the significance of what we read in verses 3 to 6, what what Shelby just read for you. These are life-altering truths that we're about to encounter. And these life-altering truths have their origin before the universe was even created. (laughs) It's truly astonishing. So I'm going to pray briefly one more time, if you can join me in that, and then we're just going to open up God's Word. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to gather and to sing, to pray together as a church, to open your Word now as a church. And what we need now more than anything is a humble heart, but also for the Spirit to reveal your truth from your Word. We want want you to show us more of who you are through these truths, and we want to apply it to our lives. And so help us. Help me to communicate well what you have already spoken for our good and for the honor and glory of your great, great name. Amen. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, contain some of the most precious truths of the Christian faith. Uh, Years ago, while I was in, in seminary, one of my theology professors made every student memorize Ephesians 1, and for very good reason. When the truths of this passage shape your mind and heart, then these truths end up shaping your life for the glory of God. But here is the challenge of approaching Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14. When you, when you come to this passage, you might ask, where do I even begin to try and understand the depth of all that is being said? Like, where do you even begin? Because there's a lot here. I mean, we're, we're talking today about election, then we got adoption, and then redemption. we got, we got spiritual blessings from the heavenly places. I mean, we've got a ton here. Where do you even begin? I, mean, it's, I think it's a fair question. How do you approach it? And it's the right question, because where you begin, it does mean figuring out the right approach, right? 
how we approach this passage matters because without the right approach, it's possible to miss the beauty of what God is saying. Here's an analogy. Uh, Growing up in Iowa, I never watched hockey. Uh, Hockey was a game played by Canadians. At least that was my perception. Hockey was a game that, uh, well, let me say it this way. The scope of my athletic experience was baseball, basketball, and football. And then every four years, there's something else during the Olympics. That's like, that's how I understood sports. When I moved to the Twin Cities in my early 20s, I began to realize Minnesotans are wannabe Canadians because they play hockey too. (laughs) They even played it outside, which was astonishing to me. And then I met my wife, Sharice, and she took me to my first professional hockey game in downtown St. Paul, XL Energy Center, Minnesota Wild. And I remember watching the game, trying to figure it out. I had no idea. I recall asking Sharice a litany of questions, but the game frustrated me. I was frustrated because I was trying to figure out the game of hockey with the wrong approach. I I approached the game of hockey through the ideals and understandings of a basketball game, which was completely wrong. And the moment I realized I was trying to figure out the game of hockey with the wrong approach, I was able to correct my approach and then understand the game of hockey better. So, therefore, your approach to the biblical text can help reveal the jewels that are like sitting right in front of your eyes. Or conversely, with the wrong approach, it's like picking up a a stone that a, a kid picks up when he's playing and then chucks it away the next second. What is a worthy approach to this passage which can help reveal to us the beauty of this passage? I will approach Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, and then the following verses over the next several weeks through the lens of what many call the covenant of redemption. That might be a new term for some of you. So let it sink in. The covenant of redemption. I'll explain what I mean by covenant of redemption in a moment. But this approach will allow us to back up and see what God has done in eternity past. And then we'll be able to dial into the details to discover how the past impacts your present Uh, God's covenant of redemption is like looking at the stars, right? On a clear night, especially out where I live, where there's no light pollution, on a clear night, you can look up at the stars and see how constellations are fitting together. You see from one end of the sky to the other end of the sky. But then you grab the telescope. With the telescope, you begin to dial into the details You dial into individual stars. The covenant of redemption is the big picture. And the individual verses in Ephesians 1 is like a star. The covenant of redemption helps us to see how verses fit together within the whole. That's really important. You just can't can't take one passage out of the Bible, pluck it out, and disregard everything else that's going on around that passage. What is the covenant of redemption? God's covenant of redemption is the idea that there is a pre-temporal agreement, pre-temporal agreement between the persons of the Trinity to plan and carry out the redemption of God's elect. 
So before the creation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in love, agreed upon a plan to redeem the elect. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, explains, it's going to get a little technical, so bear with me, the economic roles of each person of the Trinity while remaining undivided in action. Just Even that sentence alone is like, <laughs> what do you mean? What we're going to see, though, is that the, we're going to see the selection of the Father in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. We're going to see the sacrifice of the Son, verses 7 to 12. And then we're going to see the seal of the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. The members of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal, one in essence, nature, power, action, and will. And the covenant made by our Trinitarian God pops out of Ephesians 1. It's there for us to see and read and then apply. Within this covenant, this agreement, that's what covenants are. When all you married folks got, when you all got married, you all made covenants with one another. Within this covenant, what we see is God loves to bless his elect people spiritually. And because God blesses his chosen people, he is worthy of being blessed in return. That's the big picture. Now let's dial into the details of verses 3 and 4. Here is verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Talked a lot about that two weeks ago. In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right off the bat, we need to ask, what does it mean for God to be blessed? And what does it mean for God to bless? Both things are going on here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has blessed us. What's going on? At the beginning of verse 3, God the Father is the subject. So if you're, if you're an English geek, you understand what I'm talking about. God the Father is the subject. Therefore, Paul is saying that those who are in Christ should bless or praise God. Why? Because of all that God has blessed his people with. Uh, the Hebrew word for bless, which this Greek word is built off of, is the idea of someone deserving appreciation or honor or praise. So throughout the Old Testament, God is blessed or praised for the benefits that he bestows on humanity. For example, humanity praising or blessing God is seen all throughout the Psalms. You ever read the Psalms and just praise God, praise God, praise God? You can't miss it if you read the Psalms. And when the psalmist blesses God, it is because the psalmist is reflecting on how God provided and cared for Israel in the past. Remember that whole Red Sea thing with the waters going up and, you know, the Egyptians were chasing Israel? Well, God saved them. The psalmist is like, thank you, God. Bless you for caring for me. We praise you, God. So this same theme is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. I, I was recently at a, at a store with one of my children, and um, I unexpectedly bought her something. She had no idea it was coming. Very, something very simple, very basic. 
She did not expect it. She did not ask for it, but I wanted to bless her. She responded to the action of blessing with gratitude and thankfulness. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I didn't see that coming. The same relational dynamic is going on in verse 3. Because you have been undeservedly and unexpectedly blessed by God with every spiritual blessing, every, get underline that word, every spiritual blessing through Christ, you bless or praise God in return. Now, does God need our blessing? Does he need our praise? Certainly not. God the Father is not an egomaniac. He does not bless you with the motive of needing your praise in return. God blesses you out of love. Out of love. Out of love. And here's the deal. The love of God is not the kind of love you experience in this culture. When God set his electing love upon you, his love was sacrificial. The type of love God extended is gracious. God is worthy of praise not only because of who he is, but we praise God because of what he has done for us out of love. Here are the lyrics um, from the often play, played but helpful song, 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman. It accents our response to a gracious and loving God. I'm not going to sing it, but I put the lyrics up there to help you connect what we read in Scripture and what's going on when we sing this song. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. You worship his holy name. Again, I'll worship your holy name. And you get down to the bottom there. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. So many reasons to bless God. So you bless God the Father because your heart is grateful for who he is. But you also bless God for how he has dealt with you and for what God has blessed you with. How did God bless you? Through Christ. What did God bless you with? God the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. There are at least 10,000 reasons for your heart to bless and praise God. Now we have to ask the question, what are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? This isn't language we use every day. Not sure anyone has said to me, you have been blessed in the heavenly places. <laughs> I haven't gotten that greeting before. Before identifying what these blessings are, let's address what these blessings are not. These heavenly blessings are not material. If you are in Christ, God is not guaranteeing you a Maserati sports car or a high-paying job. You might have a nice car, and you might have a great job, that's not the guarantee. If you are in Christ, God is not ensuring you good health or a nice family vacation every year. Now, you might have good health. You might have the means to travel regularly, but that's not what God promises you in Ephesians. 
Now, should you thank and praise God for all the material and physical things that you have? Yep, absolutely. Praise him, saints, for all that God has provided for you. 100%. Further, we should undoubtedly pray to our loving and gracious Father for our daily bread. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Give Give us today our daily bread. So hear me when I say God the Father delights in providing for his children. But if the barometer of your praise to God is based upon what you materially have, then you have a very shallow understanding of God's love and blessings which pour forth from his love. God's spiritual blessings are more excellent than his material and physical blessings. Parenthetically, nothing cuts the legs from under the prosperity gospel like Ephesians 1.3 because the apex of God's blessing is not material. From the perspective of the prosperity gospel, the love of God is identified by the car you drive, the money in your bank account, or the clothes that you wear. Again, God's physical provision is worth celebrating, but there is so much more. There's so much more. Think of it this way. Your faith in God is tethered to spiritual blessings and not material blessings. God's highest blessings for your life are spiritual The blessings of God the Father are for those in Christ, and the Holy Spirit mediates these blessings. I love the way Ephesians 1 is written because the remainder of this chapter lays out the details of these blessings. And these spiritual blessings come from God, from God's home, heaven. By using the Greek word, Eperonios um, for heaven, Paul indicates the blessings of God and their source is in heaven as opposed to earth. The spiritual benefits that come from heaven are for the believers united in Christ. Now, some of us may need to make a mental and heart shift here. Many people are accustomed to understanding their personal value and dignity through material means, which has an earthly source. But verse 3 does not say you have been blessed in Christ with every earthly blessing. No. God's spiritual blessings are much higher and more generous than what this world can conceive of or offer you. Christian, if God took all your material blessings away, as he did with Job, Would you still praise God? Would you still bless his holy name? Or would you walk away? Those questions are diagnostic for sure. When I wrote the questions on, you know, my manuscript, I wanted to erase them because the answer forces me into commitment here. What would I do if I ended up like Job? No one wants to end up like Job. But if I did, would I still bless and praise God? Think about it. If he took it all away, 
would you still bless his holy name? So the specifics of God's spiritual blessings are for those who are in Christ and really are the focus of the next several weeks. Verse 4 begins to list out the first of these several spiritual and heavenly blessings. As I said last week, we're about to encounter, two weeks ago, we're about to encounter a string of precious and beautiful pearls. One way God has blessed you from heaven is that you have been elected or chosen. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he, God, the Father, chose us, Christian, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that what? We should be holy and blameless or without blemish before God. So I hope you begin to see why I let out by explaining God's covenant of redemption before getting to this point. This verse says that God the Father chose you, Christian, to be in Christ before the universe was ever created. Your election, God's choosing, was not by chance or choice. That is not what this says here. In the company of theologians, we do call this the doctrine of election. If you're familiar with the acronym TULIP, which is the five points of Calvinism, which certainly I am I'm a Calvinist. The U in TULIP is unconditional election, meaning your redemption was not conditioned upon anything you could have done. A Christian has contributed nothing to his salvation. Only God can regenerate the heart. Your redemption is solely based upon the grace and mercy of God through the redeeming work of Christ. You added nothing, not a thing. Sean Powers added nothing to his salvation. Not a thing. As a matter of fact, if I added anything, I would mess it up. I'd figure out a way to unlock myself. I know that's not theologically accurate, but you get the point. I am tempted to provide a personal or anecdotal evidence of God the Father's unconditional election, but I think John 10 is more worthy to mention. I've broken the chapter up to help you see the work of the Father and the Son and the calling of the elect. Our Lord Jesus Christ said this. In verse 11, he said, The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then he bumped down into verse 14. Jesus says, I am that good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And here's what he says in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So do you see and hear the verbs must and will and how definitive and final they are? Jesus must. Jesus will. So I admit the topic is controversial for some people, maybe even for some of you. I get it. I understand the sentiment and the objections to the doctrine of election, at least most of them. The debate over election will continue until Jesus returns. Still, I think it's a worthy debate because the doctrine of election, in my opinion, is biblical and it highlights God's goodness and grace. What is grace if you contribute even 1% to your regeneration? 
What is the grace of God at this point? Some debates aren't worth having. I, this one, I think, is. It's worth defending. It's worth defending. It's worth highlighting whenever possible. Some object by saying, why did God choose me over my neighbor? Why did God choose that person over that person? I understand why people ask these kinds of questions. I remember one time I was in Kabul, Afghanistan, and here I am. I'm thinking about the doctrine of election as I see a bunch of people who, unless something radical happens, are going to hell. The majority of people that I was looking at. Like, that's sobering. Got to wrestle with that. I get the question. I got extended family members who do not know the Lord. I get it. But these type of questions highlight a faulty perspective of God and self. The real problem is not why God had not chosen some. Why did he choose any? The massive rebellion in the Garden of Eden by our first parents has only been compounded generation over generation with sin. The nature and inclination of every person born into this world is against God and his goodness. Therefore, when God pours his grace upon a cold, dead heart, a heart that cannot make itself alive, there is rejoicing when that heart begins to beat for the first time because no one, no one deserves God's electing love. Sean Powers did not deserve it. You do not deserve it. Our friend Charles Spurgeon said, the election, the doctrine of election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. Spurgeon says this because he knows he is condemned in his tracks without God. He knows that his sin and rebellion are irrevocable without Christ. When God breaks in, which he planned before the foundation of the world, there is joy. The spiritual blessing of election is a cause to praise and delight in God. In eternity past, God chose you, Christian, to be redeemed. Another reason why there is resistance, I think, to the doctrine of election is because humans want to be in control. Many humans, many people want control. To say it negatively, humans hate it when they're not in control. Just think about your own life. Think about all the things you want to be in control of and how you feel when you're not in control. If there was ever a moment, an opportunity, the slightest chance for you to have control over your salvation, as I said earlier, you'd mess it up. (laughs) Being chosen by God should humble us. It's truly humbling. It does not make us proud. It should humble us by reminding us that we're not more deserving than our atheist, agnostic, or Muslim friends. We're not more deserving. If we had chosen God without him first choosing us, then then we could be proud of our wisdom. Since 
he first chose us, we should only be humble. Our salvation was, in, was entirely God's gracious initiative. As I've already said, and as we've already read, God chose you, Christian, to be an object of his love before the world was created. And I think that's worth pausing to let it sink in for a moment. Perhaps let's just go back to Genesis 1, and then we'll help us to see the profound love of God the Father before creation. You all know the verse by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First verse of the Bible. What, what is that verse really saying? Before a star was put into place, before the sun was set into the sky, before the, the dry ground was created, before the waters were set in order, before animals roamed the earth and the fish swam in the ocean, before the creation of God's first image bears, God the Father chose you to be a part of his family. In love, God adopted you into his family. You were orphaned, alone, helpless, hopeless, but God has brought you near. What a staggering reality. I must emphasize again, even for a moment, your election is, once again, in Christ. It says in verse 4, He, God the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ. God the Father chose us in Christ. There could be no other way. There could be no other way. The gospel of Jesus Christ explains there could be no other way for the Father to accomplish his electing purposes. Only Jesus Christ could take on the wrath of God for our sin. God cannot bring sinful humans into his presence forever without Christ having paid the penalty for our sin. Your election was planned and your salvation was accomplished by the work of Christ at the cross. Only Christ could defeat death and sin by rising from the dead. Your election was planned and your new life was provided because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only Christ could walk away from the grave. Your election was planned and now your life is bound up in the Son of God as you abide in him and he abides in you. John 15. Your life, brothers and sisters, is bound to God through Christ from eternity past and for all eternity. Go both ways. Because you're in Christ. So suppose all this is true. If I'm not selling you a bridge in Brooklyn, the question becomes, how then shall we live? How should we live? The end of verse 4 says, God's chosen people are to live holy and blameless before him. I made much of the Greek word for saints two weeks ago in Ephesians 1.1. The same word for saints is used here for holy, hagias, right here. And so there are two senses in which God's elect are to be holy and blameless. First, God's people have been chosen to be accepted by God as, homely, as holy and blameless based upon the holy and blameless life lived by Jesus for us. 
Because God's people are in Christ, when God the Father looks upon his son or daughter, he sees the righteousness of Christ. This is good news because scripture also tells us that one day Christ will present his elect before God the Father without blemish, Ephesians 5, 27. That's one sense in which we're holy and blameless. There's a second sense in which God's elect are to live holy and blameless. And it's to be active in conforming our likeness to Christ. We call this sanctification. God calls Christians to fight against remaining sin and to live in a manner worthy of our Savior. The obedience of Christ matters and our obedience to Christ also matters. Just as God's holiness distinguishes him from other alleged gods, so too does our holiness, the holiness of God's people, distinguish them from other people. We don't want to be like the Israelites in the Old Testament. Like God was saying, I want you to be distinguished from everyone that's around you. But what they do, they just acquiesce to what they were doing. They weren't living holy and blameless. They're doing the exact opposite. That's not what we're supposed to do. Our active obedience to God is not a drag, but a joy. Our active obedience to God is not legalism, but it's life-giving. Here's an earthly familial example of, I think, this heavenly principle here. Uh, Good parents want their kids to thrive, right? As an earthly father, I want my kiddos to thrive. I want the home to be a life-giving context, not a life-sucking context. I want to create a context where they experience life, not death, joy, not dread. So what do I do? Albeit from an extremely imperfect perspective, I instruct them in the ways of the Lord, Proverbs 22, 6. I teach them from right from wrong. We talk a lot about right and wrong. We talk a lot about good from evil. I create rules and parameters. Not because my motive is to restrict their freedom. That's not my motive. I create rules and parameters because I care for their well-being. I care for their soul. And then I ask them for obedience. Because I want them to thrive. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, I know a few things to help them in their present situation circumstances. God is patient with all of his children. He hates sin. He does want us to be holy and blameless, but he is patient. While there are starts and stops in our lives, we strive to conform our lives to God. Conforming takes place when we obey God and when we aim to walk in holiness and to become blameless. And if God has saved you through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, then why wouldn't you want to obey your loving Father? Why wouldn't you want to? So here's what we've seen thus far in these two verses. The covenant of redemption is at work through God, by which God the Father has elected a people to himself to be holy and without blemish or blameless before him. And all this was done in love. In love. In the Greek words, en and gape. Next week, we will look in detail at the magnitude of these two words. But here's a preview. Next week's just going to be two words. 
depending on your translation of the Bible, the two words in love are either connected to verse 4 or verse 5. It's a technical debate about what is love qualifying. On a technical level, I can't answer the debate. The Greek language is not clear enough to the English mind, in my opinion. However, based upon what we generally know about God, he is love. I can say with confidence, God has indeed elected out of love. God's love is the motive in which he elects, in which he adopts, redeems, and secures the believer for all eternity. These two words, en agape, certainly tell us much about the depths of God's spiritual blessings for God's elect people and how God's people are adopted out of love. So we learned a lot about the doctrine of election this week. Next week, we'll talk about how love is connected to election and then how love is connected to adoption, which is going to be two weeks from now. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, saints, blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing from where? In the heavenly places. And even as he chose us, he chose you, Christian, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before the universe was created, so that you could be holy and blameless before him. God pours out his spiritual blessings, including the blessing out of, of election, out of love. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.